Welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, where the topics, the games, our takes, and my co-hosts are all super hot. My name's Tim. <laughs> and this is Chris. This is Adam. <laughs> and tonight, we're going to be talking about a hot topic. We're going to be talking about game night etiquette. Uh, we also have a poll question to go over, and then we'll be talking about some games that have been on our table, including Pulsar 2849, The White Castle, Oath Chronicles of Empire and Exile, and Challengers. All right, let's kick off the night with a poll question, but this is relevant to our topic tonight, the topic about game night etiquette. The poll question I asked, both on our Blue Sky account as well as on our Facebook group, have you ever opted out of a game night because of the board game that was being played? The options that I gave, yes, it was a game I didn't like, that got 12%. Yes, the type or weight of game wasn't my thing, that got 3%. No, but I would, that got 23%. And no, I'm there no matter what gets played. And that got 62%. How would you guys answer this question? I answer this one, no, I've never skipped a game night, but I would if the circumstances weren't there. If I felt I was going to be a big enough poop to affect the mood of the people around me, I wouldn't go to the game night. I don't want to ruin anybody else's game night because I'm feeling like a grump. And sometimes I know I am a grump, so I should just stay home. But Adam, what's the game? Like, is there a game that if you heard it was getting played, you'd be like, yep, doesn't matter. We get together every week and I'm not going to go to that game night because I'm going to be miserable. Again, I can't think of a specific game, Tim, because I could play the worst game ever. And if it's, you know, if I'm in the right mood, I'll gladly play that with you guys and just sit there and have a fun time playing the worst game ever. But I can't think of a specific game. Do you guys have one in mind? Oh, I've got several games in mind. But I would recommend that anybody who knows Adam and can convince him to play a game that he really, really, really doesn't want to play ought to do it because he gets so funny. He gets funny when he's hating the game. There is nobody funnier than Adam. That is the fact. My answer, actually, I have three different answers to this. I, I really just want to be completely noncommittal here. The actual answer, the factual answer is no, I have never skipped a game night because of the game that was being played. That is, that is true. I think that I would skip a game night because of a game that was being played. And I've got a couple games in mind. Funny thing is, one of them is actually a game that I brought to a Portland con just recently, and that was Lords of Ragnarok. I would definitely say no to that game night, I think. And there's a couple of others like Hansa Teutonica I had a really bleh experience with. Uh, the same thing with Samurai, uh, games that I just really, truly disliked. So I think that I might. But here's the reality. The third answer, and probably that the final answer is, I have found enough games where on second or third play, I find something that I didn't find in the first play that probably the smart thing for me to do knowing my tendencies is to just go and play a game again. And now maybe if it's one that I've had two or three or four bad experiences with, then I could truly say no, thank you. Barring that, it probably makes the most sense just to give it another shot. Yeah, I answered no, I'm there no matter what gets played. And I was thinking back of the worst games that I've ever played, my least favorite games. And Chris mentioned Lords of Ragnarok. Path of Light and Shadow was a good example of a game that I really didn't like. Windward was just a miserable game experience for me. <laughs> Space Empires 4X, hate that game. And probably the top of the list would be Betrayal at House on the Hill. <laughs> but you know what? I would go ahead and join game night if somebody brought that and wanted to play it. And I'd still sit there and try to have the best time I could with it. I mean, that's reality. In fact, Betrayal at House on the Hill is a great example because when before we met Adam, when Chris and I used to have a regular game group out in Long Beach, we had a couple that we would invite over, Vinny and Sarah, and they would come and play whatever we put on the table. And that includes, even though Vinny clearly didn't like it, whatever Euro I picked out that week, even though Sarah was loving it. But Vinny loved storytelling games and he loved Betrayal at House on the Hill. And I had I had not played it before, but we played a couple times with them and they were just, that game is so bad. It is not a game. It's just an activity that makes me miserable. And and after playing those, they kept saying how much they liked it. And I kept joining in. And you know what? I still had fun game nights. I remember one night we played Trail Out House on the Hill and Drop Mix. And that was just two of the dumbest games I've ever seen in my life. And I still was glad that I went to game night that week. And I was glad to keep inviting them back. So I can honestly say that I don't think I'll ever avoid a game night because of the game that's getting played. If Chris said, hey, I really want to try, try the Lords of Ragnarok again. 
I would say, Chris, are you sure? Because this wasn't very fun for all of us. But if he said, yes, I want to try it, I would be there. I would join him. So I can't believe you hate drop mix. That's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, the reason this came up for a couple of reasons. One, it's going to come back in this in the conversation as we get into board game etiquette. As I was thinking about this question, it turns out I have some regular people that I game with that will not come to a game night because of the game that's getting played. And so my first answer when I saw some people say, yeah, I would not... I would not show up depending on the game that gets played. And I was like, oh, I don't want to game with those type of people. And then it occurred to me that I play with these type of people all the time. My <laughs> wife, for one thing, if she doesn't know the game, she will usually say, no, we're not playing that game or I'm not going to join in and play it. So that's my most common gaming partner. And she kind of picks the games that we play because she's already learned them. But I have a, another uh, friend that has been joining almost every Thursday for my weekly game night. I love playing with him. He's been pl- bringing and teaching a ton of games that I really enjoy. Very fun, very pleasant to play with. But he doesn't like heavy games, like over a certain weight. And I think he would call out like probably a 3.5 plus or something, you know, the board game geek weight. And if he knows one of those games are being played, he will say, no, I'm not going to show up. I'm not coming. And that, like I... You know, that's hard to work around because I want him to be there, but I also don't want to have to curate what everybody else can pick at the table so that he can be there. Now, he's been really nice. He's like, hey, if you guys ever want to play Arc Nova, which you know I'm not going to, I know I'm not going to enjoy, just play it. Don't feel bad about it, right? So he's, he's like really pleasant about it. And I've got another friend who, if I pick an older game that he's played a bunch, he'll be like, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm out. Like he wants to play his new games that he's got. And and so, you know, it's just not the way that I approach game night. Like, I just want to show up. I just want to play a game night. Maybe they've got, you know, different opportunities than I do. But if there's that one night a week where I'm going to get together with some friends, I'm going to be there and just try to make the best of it. You know, all that being said, my friend that doesn't like heavier games, he also, it seems like, is really aware of, like, when he says he wants to bring a game, he's like, so are you are you okay with mean games? Is this going to be okay? Are you, do you guys like, so he really cares about how other people feel about the games in a way that I would never even think about. Like, no, of course, bring whatever you want to play. I'm good with it. So it's clearly that just, you know, the game can cause an experience in a way for him that can be really negative in a way that I just don't feel. So I guess I'm, you know, lucky in that way. Uh, in any case, we'll come back to this, but I, I'm going to uh, just mention a couple comments that we got on social media related to this question. So jo- Joanna Kloss said, this happened recently and I sucked it up through wingspan. Then when that same group wanted to play again, I arrived late and they played before I got there. I'll probably suck it up through anything except Catan. That's my line. So clearly not a fan of wingspan or Catan here. Joanna, great that you're a good sport about it most of the time. Ray Meyer said, the only game I don't want to play is the one that no one wants to play. If you have a passion for it, I'm in. Jonathan Tarrington said, no, if someone has made an effort to invite me along to a game night, I'll play the game. Even if it's not a favorite of mine, I'm there for the social gathering too. Steven said, no, I'll play anything except some social de- social deduction hidden trader games, but only because I'm so terrible it would truly ruin the game. Yeah, in all fairness, I'm so terrible at those games, I probably would ruin them usually as well. Benjamin said, more of the won't play a game with certain people. I don't need a two-hour game to go into a four- to five-hour territory. So not a fan of his friends that have analysis paralysis. And then over on Blue Sky, we had a couple comments. Aaron from the Boards Live podcast said, I make my friends play so many review games that I can't really pass on a game night if they pick something I don't want to play. So that's... uh, you know, that's nice. Give it a little give and take. And then Marco Doria said, no, never. Even if I was tempted sometimes, I usually opt out when I'm too tired or don't feel too good. So, you know, not about the game, but really about his own, you know, how he's feeling. And that makes that makes some sense. By the way, I wanted to give a shout out to Marco because we've been trying to invite all of our old followers and listeners that are on Twitter over to Blue Sky. And that is still invite only. But every time I get an invite, I throw it out. Well, Marco today went out on Twitter and said, I got four invites I'll um, I'll pass it along to people over on Twitter, and so we got four new, you know, four of our friends from Twitter over on Blue Sky because of Marco. So thanks, Marco, for doing that. Great to build up that community over there. That is just one of the topics we're going to be covering: who's picking the game and how you should react to it. Now, the reason this topic came up is there was a really great post on Board Game Geek about two weeks ago. This guy named Robert Shaw posted, and he basically just put together a post and said, "I've got a wonderful game group that's been together for like ten years." And this is why it works for us. And he listed what he called his rules of etiquette or their rules of etiquette. And when I was reading through this, I was like, this is perfect. This is like the game group I want to be playing with. I agree with all of this stuff so much. So I shared it on social media and most people were like, yeah, right on. But but I did have a couple people that were like, no, you know, I don't agree with that. I don't, I, I wouldn't take that stance. And if you look at that post, if you find it on our social media pages and 
go check it out, you'll see that there was several pages of Board Game Geek comments about people telling them all the reasons that you know you, you shouldn't stick to these rules. So I thought it'd be fun just to go through these really quickly and see what you guys thought, how you react to each of them. Do you agree with them? Do you disagree? How would this game group work out for you? So I'm going to paraphrase most of what he said. I'm not going to read his whole answers. But rule number one was don't collectively choose a game. And the way they do it is every week they rotate who hosts and who chooses the game. I think that's a great idea. And I think we that's something we started doing when we were doing the regular uh, game nights. We'd each just rotate games or we'd throw out an option of three. I like doing that. Like if it's my turn to pick, I'll throw out three games and everybody else kind of vote on them. So I get something I like. And then it's at least some sort of consensus from the group on the game that we end up playing. I think that's a pretty fun way to do it. Yep. And I would agree with that. And I would also agree with Adam that the way we did, it, I think, was even a little bit better rather than just having one person just pick the game straight out. One person gives a couple of options for the same reasons that Adam said. But I think the the concept there is a really good one. Yeah, I'm totally 100 percent on board with this. And and I did like what you guys did as well. I mean, that was usually your guys idea that would do that. Now, the only problem with it is that if you've got a game that you really want to get played and the rest of the group is mediocre and they're always going to pick the other games over it. So I always thought of it as a fun a fun exercise, but not a hard and fast rule. So that if I did finally want to say like, guys, you're not going to be miserable. Just play this game with me. Then I still got the pick out of it. So I like that. We'll, we'll circle back to that in a second. His second rule was commitment show up basically said, you know, listen, there's like four to six spots here. And if you don't want to be here, there are other people that would love to be in these spots. So if you, if you're going to be a part of this group, be there as regularly as you can, you know, obviously things are going to get in the way once in a while. Uh, how do you guys feel about you know, having some commitment to your game group. Yeah, that's a tough one. You know, you got to know people's circumstances are always going to change and differ, you would think, over the years or over the months. So, yeah, at least communicate. If you if there's a reason you can't make it or you're not going to go, communicate ahead of time and let the hosts know so or the coordinator know so they can get some other people on the list or try to mend up or plan the game accordingly because all that stuff goes in to having a good game night. So, communicate and let people know if you're not going to be able to, you know, commit, let them know your commitment status ahead of time. Like I could probably make every other week this month instead of weekly. So just like with anything in life, just good communication and being upfront about it, I think is, will go a long way. Well, once again, I'm going to agree with Adam. I think that's all reasonable. And I also think that it depends on the size of the game group. Because, for example, our game group, basically, I have two game groups. One of them is you guys. And with what we do, you kind of have to show up every week because, well, we do a podcast. It'd be kind of weird if one of us just wasn't showing up regularly, right? So that's kind of a necessity. Or if you only had a small group and you needed to have all the people in order to make the games work. The other game group that I play with meets every Thursday night. And there's like 12 people in the group. So an email goes out or a text goes out, usually on Wednesday or Thursday morning. Hey, who's showing up tonight? And it's frequently, you know, five, somewhere between, you know, four to six to eight people that show up. But there's no big concern if anybody doesn't show up. There's always going to be enough people there to play a game or two. Sometimes we have enough people that two games are going on at the same time. But nobody's too stressed out if it's a smaller group. But it doesn't matter as much because there's so many people that you're always going to get at least critical mass to get a game going. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think that's, you know, it, we're, we're adults with responsibilities and families and work, you know, work schedules that change and stuff like that. So you can't promise all the time. Uh, that said, I, I mean, I, I appreciate it when people are at least consistently trying to show up. And I had started to put together a group with some local people and I had four people. And for like six weeks in a row, I'd have like two of them every week would be. It, not sorry, can't make it this week. Well, after four weeks, okay, you guys don't actually want to come to game night. So you're not on my invite list anymore. You're probably happier about it. Right now, I've got a group of about five to six that seem pretty consistent. And at least I'm getting a rotation of two to four every week. And that's great. People are trying. Part of it too is how quickly you communicate. Like when I throw out that kind of a, a request every Monday via text, hey, who's showing up this week? You know, if you can give an answer as quickly as possible, then when we pick the game and we plan on, you know, what's the best game for that group. And if I'm setting the game up in advance, it doesn't work if it's a great four player game and then only two people show up and okay, well, let's, you know, re kind of rethink what we're going to do tonight. So communication and doing the best you can to be consistent with it. If you want to be a part of a regular group, Chris, I love that you got a group of like 12. That's kind of my ideal is that you just got a big enough group that you're getting a couple games together every week. And I think I've got an opportunity to kind of head in that direction. But for right now, I'm getting like this week, I got a group of four was almost five. 
So we're almost getting to the point where I could invite everybody I want to, and it's too much for one game. So we'll start to split it up. And I think that's perfectly fine. That's still a fun game night. All right. The third one had to do with the poll question I asked and kind of to the first question, but he said choice of game. But essentially the person who's choosing that week, pick what you want to play. And if someone else picks a game that's not your favorite, be a good sport about it. And this is one of the questions that had a lot of pushback. You know, essentially, are you still going to show up if somebody else picks a game you don't love? The, the whole idea being that you shouldn't be trying to cater to everybody's tastes in the group every time you pick a game. We're not all going to agree. In fact, that's part of the fun of the hobby is there's so many so much variety. And if you at least go in with a good mindset and say, hey, I haven't liked the last three you know, worker placement games we played, but I'll try this one again. Maybe it'll surprise me. Or I haven't liked the last two co-op games we played, but you know, John really wants to get this played tonight. So I'll give it a shot and see how it goes. I think if you go in with a good attitude about the games you're playing, you may still have fun. And you know what, even if it's a game, you know, you don't like most likely if you've got a group that you like to play with, there's some value in the game. There's some reason why they're wanting to pull it back out and play it again. And you can sit down and try to have a fun time with it and, you know, do your best. So from my perspective, I think this is one of the rules that I feel really strongly about. Like, like I said, I'm not going to just not show up to your game night because you picked a game that I'm not particularly excited about. Yeah, this goes into a bunch of those factors. Are you the third crucial member of the group who said you were going to come and now you have no reason not to come other than you just don't like the game? It depends, again, on the situation. If it's a group of 10 and they want to play Sidero Confluence and I've never played that before, nobody's going to miss me if it goes down to nine instead of 10 in a game like that. So again, it depends on circumstance in the game. I'm not saying I'd love to try City Road Confluence, by the way, at some point. But, you know, it depends. Yeah, I think my answer is the same. And this is why I kind of gave that equivocal answer before, because I think that it's really, it sort of depends and I'm not 100% sure. And I think that I might skip out on a game night. But I probably, you know, when you actually laid it out the way that you did, Tim, I doubt I'd be a pooper and make it so that a game group couldn't really play a game they wanted to play because I wasn't there. But then again, for my big game group, if they were going to play a game I really didn't want to play, it wouldn't matter that much if I didn't show up. There'd be plenty of people there, and it's probably pretty unlikely that it's going to ruin anybody else's night. I mean, I, I know that I'm you know delightful company, but nobody else is going to be too sad that, that they had one less person. All right. So the the fourth one here has to do with the rules, and basically whoever is supposed to whoever is choosing the game should learn the rules in advance and be ready to teach it. So that's part one, and then part two is. Every, nobody's perfect. If somebody is teaching you the game and they miss a rule or they tell you later on and remind you about something, don't be an a-hole about it. If they, you know, it's like, it's a game still, right? So even if it wasn't the, per- you didn't plan the perfect strategy because you didn't realize about this one edge case, move on. I'm sure that if you taught the rule, most likely they did tell you that rule and you just missed it when they were teaching it. <laughs> like that's what happens most of the time when somebody tells me, you didn't tell me that. No, I absolutely told you that. But you were pro- trying to process like a dozen other rules at the same time. So I get it, right? You're going to miss it. So just just be friendly about it and be thankful that somebody was nice enough to spend their time learning a game and teach you the rules and, and try to help you get through it. I think I agree with both of those part A and part B. If you want to show up with a game you're interested in playing, learn the rules, learn ahead of time and be ready to teach. But yeah, you know that when you teach it, there's going to be mistakes or people are going to come at you and be like, dude, did you say this? I didn't hear it. There's been times I know I've taught a game. I'm like, yeah, I mentioned that earlier because I know it's crucial and I knew it's a small thing and I knew somebody was going to forget later when it was really important. And then be like, oh, Adam didn't say that, but I did say it. There's just as many times I forgot to tell some crucial rules. So both ways be, you know, just be tolerant for the game and uh, if, try to enjoy the whole thing. Teaching is hard. So if someone is taking the time to teach you the game, be appreciative, like you said, Tim, and be okay with mistakes because everybody makes mistakes. Yep. And I'm going to give this one a hearty heck yeah for both parts of that. Because if I'm showing up and I'm going to bring a game with me and I'm going to expect other people to play it, I'm absolutely going to expect that I'm going to have to teach it to them. I can't expect, I can't assume that they're going to learn it in advance. That doesn't make any sense. And certainly if I'm trying to teach it, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to get the rules right. And I'm going to try not to forget anything. And hopefully I don't forget anything that significant. And I'm going to assume the same as somebody else who's teaching it. And if they do forget something, these, these are dense, dense rule sets. A lot of times you can't even find a teach video that's less than an hour. So people are bound to miss something. Hopefully it's not too critical, but if they do, I'm certainly not going to hold it against them. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think this is an important part of making it a fun game night. Don't 
don't bring a game and then ask me to help punch it and then you're going to read out of the rule book and we're going to learn it together nope that is a game that i will probably skip out on be ready to teach the game or tell me in advance that, that you're that you want to play it and i may even try to help learn it so that we can you know get through it smoother together yeah and i've had before where that's the agreement like with anachrony tim like oh let's open this box and punch it all out and try to figure out how to play it and we'll kind of set it up and go through it together that's a fun way to do things too if if that's the agreement, you know, let's learn the game together. That's a, a super fun way to get into a game too, which I miss doing that kind of thing. Yeah. That one time though, too, that was like, we were hanging out together for like a full weekend and playing like a ton of games. That was actually a nice break where we were kind of, okay, let's pause for a second, stop playing a game. Yeah. We'll just bust this out after dinner and, you know, sort through it and just chat while we're doing it. And then the next day, just sit yeah. and watch a video together. That, that was, that was great. That was pretty cool. But that's not like a normal game night where you've got three hours, you know, and then someone shows up and wants to do that. Sure. Tim, you and I did a session like that when I first got <laughs> Batman Gotham City Chronicles, where I taught it to you and we played it in Long Beach. And then I think we played it the second time in Palm Springs, but I had done such a bad job with the teach that we both sat down and watched a video together in Palm Springs so we could learn it again. So there, that's a good way to mix both uh, both versions of that. There's no easy way to learn that game. <laughs> so there is no easy. I think way. you did the best you could. <laughs> I tried. All right, probably failed. All right, I'm only. Gonna, I'm not going to go through this whole list. There's a few more I'm going to go through here. So number five was take backs, and his group's you know theory on this was allow take backs when it's not too much to roll back. Yeah, try to agree to what you're going to do ahead of time, or are the stakes that high? Does it really matter? Did someone make a clear blunder, and you're like, dude, you don't. You don't want to do that. It's going to change the whole balance of the game and they realize it. Or as long as it's agreed, I think we're pretty good. Like everyone's like, oh, I should have done this or I missed my two extra bucks for this thing or I should have moved this up on the tracker because it triggered over here when I forgot this fifth thing. So any of that stuff, just do it. If you, yeah, I don't really care. You know, are we playing for the World Series of uh, Castle Burgundy? No, we're not. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I think within reason, as long as it doesn't cause you to undo too much stuff, you can go ahead and do that, do that anytime. Although I always do feel like you have to tell people that you're going to do it because I've been trained by Steve, because if I start moving something on the board or moving something in my hand or on my tableau or whatever, and I don't explain it first, Steve will be going, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you moving that? Steve has eagle eyes on that. He does. And there's another caveat to what I was saying too. No take backs if... Tim has caught me kind of doing this before and I've kind of caught myself doing it before where if I took something back, it would have changed. It would have given me some advantage that I shouldn't have had before taking it back, whether I meant to do that or not. Like even if I'm taking it back and I don't even see this advantage, Tim will be, you know, I think there's been something where you're like, dude, Adam, that's going to kind of affect the course of the game. And I was like, oh, you're right. I do not want to take that back because it something changed. The game state shifted just enough to where, you know, if it changes the game state, then no takesy backsies, especially if it's going to hurt somebody else for the dumb thing that you did, then just leave it alone. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, yeah, we all make dumb mistakes where we just missed something obvious on the board. We should have done that. But once more information has been revealed yeah. that wasn't there when you made your yeah. choice, then it's it's kind of like off the table. OK, you know, what? listen, I make a lot of mistakes in board games and I don't sometimes I want to take back and I'm trying to teach myself to just be like, you know what, move on, forget about it. But I think where I'm totally comfortable with take backs is if the next person's decisions aren't going to be impacted by what you change, you know, like they haven't made their choice yet or nothing new is revealed. Be like, oh yeah, no, that's totally fine. Or like you said, if they were supposed to get some resource or they missed some bonus they were supposed to get, you know, these games get complicated and there's a lot of triggers that trigger other things. And like, just have fun with it. Of course, if you, you would have done that on your turn, if you'd remember to do it. So just do it right. There's no problem at all with me on that. So I'm pretty much on board with this group on that one. Uh, number six, they called this the earthquake. Now, I've never heard this term before, but basically what they said is that you might get into a game a couple turns or you know halfway through the game and realize that you blew it. You blew your strategy. You don't, you don't have any way to come back and win. You know you can't win because of maybe something you did or the game state, you know, the, the way the game states changed. And their kind of policy here is suck it up keep playing through and have the most fun you can. Yeah. The, the earthquake, that's a funny term. If, um, and I've, this has happened to me a lot where I get way behind in the game, especially on the first play, there's going to be so many games. I don't even know really what's going on until I get a chance to learn the mechanisms and see how everything flows and be like, Oh, that's why this 17th level tracker exists down here. I get it now. I just try to, if I can piece something together by the end of the game or, you know, try to get a sense for a great combo 
or some sort of interesting move, I try to find something, set that little micro goal, make some breakthrough, try to understand this different aspect of the game. If I can learn something every time and have fun with it, at least make one exciting move or do something that seems sort of cool. I think Barrage one time, you guys were both kicking my butt and I was able to do the um, the black faction there. I think it's Germany where you get to build a power plant and then you get to pump twice if you do that third power plant or power station, whatever it's called. So yeah, I did that one time and got two different contracts and I was like, oh, this is super exciting and so fun. And I lost by 40 points. But that turn was amazing and made me want to come back to Barrage again and again and again, just because some small, cool thing. Yeah, I feel like that scenario you described, Tim, has happened to me like in 50% of my games. So if I if I wasn't okay with that, I don't think I'd be playing games anymore. Yeah. I think I'm skeptical to begin with that there's that many games where a few moves in, you can actually blow it so badly that you a good player couldn't come back. I mean, I, I suppose if you were a newbie or a you know a relatively novice player and you're playing against a you know crackerjack hot shot you know, players who you're probably going to lose against anyway, maybe there's a way to blow it early on. But I mean, isn't that part of the fun of board games is to be able to find a way to come back when the cards are stacked against you a little bit. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of part of the excitement. Yeah, that's part of the fun for me. And what I always do for myself is like, if I get into that position where I'm like, I can't win this, but oh, can I get up to third place? Or can I get up to second place? So I still find a goal that I'm trying to accomplish and try to make the most of it. Now, I'm not, you know, like, listen, we all have our bad days, right? And I'm sure there are days where I've been playing a game and I said, oh, geez, there's no way I can win this. But you know what happens like 50% of the time when someone says that in a game, they come back and win it. So, you know, just go with the flow, enjoy the game, enjoy the experience of it. This actually happened to me twice recently. So one was uh, a listener. He's on our board game arena group. And I assume he's a listener, but he reached out and said, hey, does anyone want to play a game of Ark Nova? And I was like, yeah, man. So it was a two player game. And we got about three or four turns in. He said, just FYI, I'm going to quit the game after 50% because I know I'm not going to win this. And I was like, okay, do you want to quit it now? He's like, no, I want to give you your ELO rating, but I just don't want to stick it out if I don't have a clear path to win. And that was so surprising to me because Arc Nova can totally shift the game. Like I've gotten 50 points in a turn on that game before out of the blue and took a win on it. So I was like, how could you possibly know you're not going to win it? I ended up being a really competitive game. And he once once we got to the 50 point mark, he, we were about even. He's like, okay, I'll keep playing it. But that's such a strange, um, you know, for me, such a strange attitude to take about the experience of just playing a game, especially a game like Arc Nova that has so much discovery in it and so many exciting things that could happen over the course of the game. But I also, um, I've played with a couple people in the past that I don't play with anymore, where they would consistently, you know, halfway through the game or 25% through the game, start to get really grumpy about not being able to win. And just like bring the whole table down. It's multiplayers and they're just sitting there just pouting about it. And then again, inevitably, they end up pulling out a win or coming really close at the end. And that's just such a bad attitude to bring to the table. Who cares if you win? As four people, you're not, you can't win every game. You know, there's, like that just doesn't make sense to me. So I, I really appreciate the fact that they brought this in here, that this is an important you know, etiquette rule that you bring to your game night. And I'm sorry about that, Tim. I hope you'll start playing games. <laughs> being a good loser is just as important, if not more important than being a good winner, because you're going to be losing, you know, 75% of the time in a four player game. And, and that, that brings to the next point, which I'll touch on really quick. They called it the winning streak and basically said that, listen, if you're the, by far the best person in your game group, that's just winning all the time, whereas one 10 game nights in a row, especially if it's like the same game you're coming back to, find some other way to make it fun for yourself other than crushing your opponents. Now, that doesn't have to happen too often, but I've definitely been in a place where I introduced new people into, into the games and I knew that I had an advantage, an inherent advantage just from the experience of playing that game or other games more. So I don't take the optimal move every time. Sometimes I say, like, this is a great time to try a new strategy. So I don't think this is something that, you know, a regular game group that's got four plus people in it is going to run into very often. But I do think it's nice that, you know, to, to kind of consider everybody else around the table, make sure they're all having a fun time uh, based on the way you play. Yeah, I know Chris has been kind to me with Star Realms for this. He's, you know, took me under his wing and not just crushed me down right away and nurtured me into the Star Realms player that I am today. So for that, <laughs> thank you very much. Chris. And now he crushes me routinely. Okay, l let, me, let me put this put it this way. I think in a scenario like that, 
which has never actually occurred because I'm really not that great in most games. But in those situations where I'm playing somebody who's really new or playing, you know, with a kid or playing with people who are brand new and I want everybody to have a good experience, I find that what works for me is I just sort of shut down half of my brain or like I take, I'm not going to think that hard through these turns. I'm just going to really play by gut. And, you know, a lot of times I end up losing in those games. And a lot of times that you know, I don't care, especially if you're playing with people who you routinely beat or if they're people who are at a disadvantage because of age or experience or whatever, then, you know, it's it's more important that they have a good time than it is for me to win a game. Yeah, but, th- but that said, I mean, again, I, I'm not suggesting, personally, I wouldn't suggest that anyone throws a game, right? I never do that. When I'm playing with you guys, it doesn't matter how well I'm doing in our league scoring or whatever. I'm never throwing a game and I'm always trying to play the best I can. But I think we're mm-hmm. more likely to see that situation, like you said, Chris, with a kid or just somebody that's really inexperienced. Because if you just like crush them the first five games that they play with you, they may not want to come back and play games anymore. So there's other ways to make it fun for everybody. And you can even make it fun for yourself, even if you're still trying to win, but you can try to do it in maybe a unique way. I guess that's the only way I would think about that. Well, there's a few more rules that he mentions here, but I think they're pretty obvious, like don't get food on your friend's games and don't have the you know your cell phone out at the table for the most part, things like that. We don't need to talk into all of that stuff, but I thought it was a pretty solid list personally, and I'd be happy to play in a game group that kind of had this, this ingrained etiquette into it. Uh, any other particular etiquette rules that you guys feel like are really important to you with a regular group that you're going to play with? Just be nice to everybody. Unless they're being a jerk, then you don't have to be nice to them. Except for in the game when you're crushing them in the Yggdrasil or whatever. True. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I found a great game group in you guys and great game groups I get to play with around here. Now, we have another topic that uh, may be related to etiquette, maybe uh, etiquette, maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's a kind of fringe thing. But we were actually going to do a different episode tonight. And the episode we were going to do is we were going to try to do a double take. What We've done this a couple times in the past where we revisited a game that we'd featured on the show a long time in the past. I mean, the show's been running for three years. So we have games that we haven't talked about for a while. And we were going to take one of those games, play it, and then kind of re-review it. And it's, you know, like revisit how are we feeling about it now what's changed and we may still do some of these in the in the future um but adam i want to hear from you so we we decided to do the castles of burgundy tonight and i want to hear from you how did that go for you what did you think of this game after not having played it for a couple years well tim this is a game i know it's one of your favorite games and for so long i've tried to be polite for the benefit of our friendship and tried tried to enjoy this game i can't do it anymore there are so many reasons I don't like this game. And now for the, I feel like now for the benefit of our friendship, you can tell what kind of games I like and what kind of, now I have to be honest. I have to come clean. I have to tell you how I honestly feel about Castles of Burgundy and why it is absolutely terrible. So what, why, why, what's terrible about it? I want to hear what you think is terrible about it based on your experience playing it today. Okay. There's a, where do I start? There's a few things. There's the, um, let me just talk about the most obvious thing right away that, iconography and color mismatch. You have these tiles that are one color. On the player board, they're a different color. The yellow is different than the yellow. It's like a greenish yellow here. There's two potential ones that it could be over here. There's a brown tile here that doesn't quite match the brown on the player board. (laughs) So it sounds like I'm being a little bit facetious, but this all comes back to information parsing and how to interpret all these complex series of things and bring it together in your brain to have a fun time playing the game and not have to worry about figuring out what this shit is trying to say. So that's one thing, the iconography and the color mismatches bugs. So for iconography, you've got all these different buildings and I know there's like a player aid or something, but for board game arena, what do I have to have to hover over and read what it says? And okay. So should I know that the red roof building is a church and that the blue roof building is what is it? Is it like an orphanage and I can go to the orphanage and I get like an extra worker from there? That's, that's weird. Compare it to something like terraforming Mars. All right. You've got city tiles that are gray and they have a city on it. You have a mine tile that has like a shovel and like a cave. And what does a mine do? It makes ore. How easy is that to remember? The, the blue roof buildings are an orphanage. I can get some workers for there. Got it. Oh, wait a minute. There's another blue roof building in this <laughs> game that means something else. Like I wrote that down here, but there's two blue roof. I thought I had it straight, but no, there's two of these. Okay. So 
you get that. And that's just all the different buildings. There's nothing about the buildings or really the iconography on the tile to help you know what that tile is supposed to do. And that's like for all the tiles, all right? There's some animals and yeah, you match the animals. That makes sense. There's, that's easy to see. Go back to Terraform Mars. Again, the forest tile is green, you know, like that's, that's like triple encoded already. You turn in your plants, turns to forest tile. The forest tile is green and it has a picture of a forest on it. If you have the textured 3D ones, then that's triple encoded. All these things to help you remember and recall what is supposed to happen in the game. So I've gone back to Castle Burgundy, I don't know how many times with a few months in between it. And each time it's this exercise and like, okay, what does this tile do? What does this tile do? You've got six different spots with all these different tiles around the center thing where you can buy more tiles. It is an exercise in information recall and parsing every time you go back to this game. The theme also does nothing to help you recall this the mechanisms of this game either, okay? Again, there's these buildings, you're trying to match these farms, you put out these castles and that lets you draw another tile. None of it makes any sense. So I feel like the advantage goes to the person who's played this game 30 or 40 times, knows subsection D, paragraph two, section E, oh, this is the tile that does that, duh. And now I can combo it with this and this and this. You, why should I have to memorize series of rules? I wrote this down because I was so pissed about that. <laughs> why do I have to memorize a series of rules or tiles and exceptions and subsets and how they all work together in order to compete in this game. When we play a game, when I bring a game, I want us to all be able to compete together. I don't want it to be a contest of who can know the obscure rules the best. So Castles of Burgundy boils down to being like an abstract game. If I want to play an abstract game that's tile placement, I'm going to play Azul, where there's a weensy three paragraphs of rules, and you learn more about the game through pattern recognition and repeated plays, and you, this whole emergent property of the thing comes through. Anyway, back to Castles of Burgundy. I think you could argue this is a game you should introduce to people if you want them to never play board games again. There is nothing cool. <laughs> wow. There's nothing cool about this game. And that's where I sit with Castle of Burgundy. Okay, Chris, before I before I bring up why I brought this up in, in the etiquette conversation, it has nothing to do with Adam's rant on it. It's totally fine if he hates this game. It doesn't bother me. Uh, Chris, how do you feel? Like, do you, you, you've never actually talked about the Castle of Burgundy on the show. You missed the review that we did of it. So just quickly, what's your general thoughts? And, you know, maybe do, do you have any responses to Adam about his feelings on it? Wow, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to say anything. I don't want Adam to hit me <laughs> or yell at me. Or not like me anymore. I just, I, no, this I, game just doesn't, it makes no sense, Chris. Help it, help me. <laughs> I need, I'm looking for help. What am I missing? I can't wait to hear what Tim has to say about this. I, I don't, I don't know how much I can help you on this one. I like the game. I will agree with you though, Adam, that graphically it does nothing for me. It is difficult to parse out what these different tiles do. I mean, it, it, it's not like, it's not terribly standardized iconography, I don't think. So the buildings do look very, very different, and it can be a little bit difficult to tell one building from another. I find myself going back and forth and back and forth. And we were playing it on BGA. And sometimes when I'm playing on BGA, I'm playing it on my iPad, and you can't just hover over something. And so I was just sort of taking wild guesses at what I thought that that tile maybe did, because there's no clue on the tile, you know, a blue building versus a red building versus whatever. And so I think that's all a fair criticism. I also think it's a fair criticism that it's not very thematically exciting. So graphically, thematically, some of the rules are a bit of a challenge to, to remember. But ultimately, I actually find that I do kind of like this game. And I didn't think it was as complicated as you're saying. And maybe that's just, you know, tolerance for all those other things we were just talking about that are negatives. But I actually thought that it was not not super complicated. And after a little bit, I was able to kind of remember what some of the buildings did. And I, the rule set start, started to sort of sink in with me. And I really do like that mechanism of the dice roll and then having the dice uh, determine which tiles you can pick and where they can be placed and trying to you know fill in those different colored regions of hexes so you get those bonuses. So that part I actually found really satisfying. So there's a lot about this game that I enjoy. And even with all the downsides that I think are all legitimate, I'm happy to play this one. And in fact, I think 
you know, I think it'd be really fun to play this one with Tim's souped up brand new Awakened Realms version, because I imagine that at least some of the graphic appeal of it would be dramatically different. I mean, does that seem like it might be a plausible thing to you, Adam, or is that just like outside the realm of possibility? I thought Tim has talked about this and they made this new version and it sounds like they didn't really even fix it. They fixed a lot of stuff. They just didn't fix everything. So this is all valid criticism because I think it was the hardest thing to get this game learned and and start playing it and teaching it. And, and the fact that I don't have to do this anymore, but for the first probably dozen games of this, I had to look through an appendix in the rule book to look up each of those technology tiles until I started to internalize the rule, you know, kind of what the iconography meant. You're right. The iconography is useless. It's, it's not, you can't use it. That is a hundred percent valid criticism. Um, but why I wanted to talk about this today, and it, you know, I'm, I'm saying it's etiquette, but it's more etiquette for yourself and your own enjoyment of games. And that is, don't try to play a game that you don't remember how to play, right? So like, that's kind of what happened today was that Adam came back to Castle Burgundy, a game that he hadn't played for a while. We were, we, you know, and and if we had sat down at a table to play it, I would have retaught you. I would have said, okay, these are how the rules work. This is what this group of buildings, I've taught this game to a dozen people and they understand how to play the game when sitting down to learn it. But I do this to myself all the time on Board Game Arena. And I, that's why I wanted to bring this up. So what happens a lot of the time is we get invited to games on Board Game Arena, whether it's one of us inviting each other or a listener that invites us or whatever, and we've never played the game before. And if I don't learn the game before I start taking those turns, I know that that game isn't really going to be as enjoyable for me. It's not going to be as fun as if I learn the game first. And so, you know, that's that's if, if you're kind of coming into a game, even if it's a game you used to know and you if you don't let somebody reteach it or you don't relearn the rules, you're probably not going to have a fun time with it. And that's really all I wanted to call out here because I could tell, here's what Adam posted in chat today. Okay, and now Castles of Burgundy is not a heavy game. This is like rated a bike, like a three point, 05 on board game geek i've taught this to a lot of people that are new to gaming people get in they can play with the rules here's what here's what adam said today <laughs> he said that's the problem the rules make zero sense whatsoever that's absolutely not true the rules make perfect sense you just have to know the rules before you play the game how does placing a castle on this square <laughs> mean i get to play another tile it makes no sense. Because that's what, that's the rules. That, that's the rules. It, if, if I sat down and taught this to you, there's six types of tiles and I could, I could teach. That's the thing, Tim. You have taught this to me like five or six different <laughs> yeah, like times. Two years ago. Why can I never recall what it's about? Because it makes zero sense. There's nothing about this game that's, you know, gives you the recall, gives you that snap memory. Sure. Oh, this is how this works. It's, it's not there. And I can't, there's nothing that draws me in. Like, how am I going to invite my, my Korean friends over, my Japanese friends over? Do you want to check out this game that's about European farming? And it makes no thematic sense. Like, how am I going to introduce this game to those friends? Okay, again, I don't. it's fine that you don't like it. I'm just saying that I think the difference between saying the rules aren't comprehensible versus I, you know, I, I couldn't easily get back into the rules. That's a fair criticism. The iconography is bad. But... The rules are not that complicated. If you just, you have to re-internalize rules of a game or you have to internalize rules of a game before you can play it and enjoy it. That's all I'm saying. Why do you, why are you spinning dice to draw a tile? Why are you spinning dice to draw a tile? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> dice are fun. Uh, that makes zero sense. All right. Well, well you, you can't wait to, for you to hear about my couple of dice drafting games I'm going to be talking about uh, oh, <laughs> this boy. evening out on the table. Speaking of, let's jump over to that. I think we've uh, spent enough time on on game night etiquette. We'll quickly run through a couple games that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. Let's talk about some games that are on our that have been on our table this week. And Chris, it sounded like you had a great gaming weekend this last weekend. Uh, spent a weekend out with the, with some people out playing games the whole time. So excited to hear about some of these things you've been had on your table. Yeah, that game group that I talked about, my Thursday night game group, had a retreat out on the Oregon coast this last weekend, and oh my goodness, it was so much fun. There was about 12 people there. There was at least two games going at a time. People would play games, then go eat, do some eating, and then go take a walk out to the beach, and it was just good time all around. And I gotta say, my proudest moment is I walked away with the most coveted 
trophy of the weekend. Highest loss percentage. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, Chris. Well, I know I was pretty proud of that. So we played a lot of games that weekend, but there's two of them that I want to touch on. And the first one is Oath by Cole Worley and with art by Kyle Farron and published by Leader Games. And for this one, I got to give my apologies to my friend Eric, who brought this game to Game Weekend on my very enthusiastic request. And now I'm going to kind of talk bad about it. So sorry about that, Eric. But I also want to give a couple of caveats. The first one is this ended up being about a five-hour game, and that was with the teach, which it wouldn't have been under other circumstances. The other is that this is my first game. I'd never played it before, and I was coming into the middle of a campaign. This is a campaign game, and there were they were, I think, three games in. This is the third game, and so I was kind of coming into the middle. So all of that probably affected my ability to enjoy this game. But a little bit about the mechanics, there's not a ton here that's particularly unusual in the sense that it's largely area control. You have a bunch of locations, you have characters that are moving around these locations, trying to get control of them, putting armies there, raising armies, gathering resources. You have various actions that you can take that take resources to do, such as moving your character around, moving your armies around, uh, placing armies, getting the resources that you need to... Uh, get at these various locations. All those take different kinds of actions. A lot of that stuff I'm not going to go into because it's it's not that unusual. But w- here's the problem. The thing about this game is that it has these win conditions that are often based on these really fairly minor circumstances, like owning a particular object or controlling a certain number of territories and sometimes a, a low number of territories. And what that meant was winning or losing felt like such a matter of chance in this game that it was incredibly difficult to actually develop a strategy and try to carry it out. And interestingly, what that also meant to me was that even though this is a game that's supposedly very story-based, it didn't feel like there was an arc to the story. A lot of times when you're playing a game, that arc that we talk about where you start out and you start churning and you start building up and then you get to this big climax, it didn't really feel like that here because the the ability to attain victory, to get to your, your, uh, your win condition was so variable. It was so kind of come and go, you know, here and then gone that it always felt like anybody could be on the verge of winning the game, and it felt almost completely unpredictable. It didn't feel that much like a story with a buildup and then a big climax. So to illustrate this, let me just tell you a little bit about how I almost won this game, but then ended up not winning it. So one of the characters starts out as, one of the players starts out as the chancellor, which is sort of like the leader of the land, and everybody else is either an exile or they're a citizen. And the chancellor had all of these tremendous powers, these tremendous abilities, control over these areas, and they come into the game with this huge set of conditions that all they have to do is basically hang on to those for a certain amount of time. And then when you get to a certain number of rounds, then there's a die roll. And if the chancellor still has met those goals, then they can win on the first die roll. It's if they roll a six. And the second one is if they roll a five or a six. And then the next and final round, if they roll a three, a four, a five, or a six, then they automatically win the game. And so we're cranking along and everybody's starting this game going, there is no way in heck that the chancellor is going to be able to lose this because there's so many things on the chancellor's side. And so I'm just sitting there kind of going, all right, I'm doing nothing. I'm taking these turns that seem like they're amounting to absolutely zero. I'm just kind of tuned out because I didn't have any any better, you know, anything better to do. And, you know, I, I didn't think I would had any chance of winning. But then at one point I was like, okay, well, there is this one item called the, I think it was called the the banner of the favor of the people. And if you had that banner and you were a citizen as opposed to an exile, which is a thing that has to be granted to you by the chancellor, then if the chancellor would win, you win instead. And so I said to the chancellor, hey, how about you make me a citizen? And he said, "Okay, I'll make you a citizen. And I said, well, it's because I think I can get this banner and then I'm going to win if you're supposed to win. And he's like, well, I'm going to take that away from you, but I'm going to make you a citizen in the meantime. So we got to this point where this this uh, I got this banner and the rest of the game was basically passing this banner back and forth. I was trying to keep it. And he was trying to take it away. And we're going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth till the point where we get to the the scenario where the dice roll started. And then the first time the dice got rolled, 
I had the the banner. And again, remember that if he is supposed to win, if I have the banner, then I win instead. So he rolls. It's not a six. I don't win because he didn't roll a six. And then the next round comes and he's got the banner because he took it away from me. And then in the last round, there was a, all you had to do is roll a three, a four, a five, and a six. And I win the game and he rolled the dice, ended up being a one. So twice based on a single die roll in a five hour game, I won, I would have won or lost the game. And the ability to take this flag back and forth was so simple to do, so easy to do that it felt almost inconsequential. And at the same time, other people are kind of flailing around trying to do other things that seemed inconsequential at the time. But ultimately, after all of that, it was a third person who was doing something else entirely different on another side of the board that ended up winning the game. And and the worst part of it, the worst part of it was that the whole time the conversation was about, okay, here's what we need to do to stop Chris from winning. And now here's what we need to stop Sean from winning. And now here's what we need to stop to keep Eric, Eric from winning. And it was just all, it really, what it came down to in the end was there was one or two, you know, one or two people out of the five people playing who had the ability to be spoilers and really just got to choose who won the game. And that just, I don't know, the whole thing left me feeling pretty flat. I know that there is probably a group that this would work for. But to me, that kind of an experience in a five-hour game, I ended up leaving it feeling like I'd played a five-hour game of diplomacy on a board covered with cute animals, sort of like Root. So the production was good is what I heard. Yeah, production was nice. <laughs> no, that's uh, that actually sounds really awful, Chris. A number of things you mentioned there, you know, I'd, I'd heard a little bit about it, and it really never sounded like it'd be a good game for me. But both the fact that you played for a while and there wasn't a there wasn't a fun journey to get to that bad end game was you know like sometimes a game cannot can have a dumb end game but can still be fun to be playing it doesn't sound like that that was this game for you and then the king making part of it just frustrates the heck out of me the fact that it's all about how you can stop other people and if you get a little bit lucky and manage to squeeze in something that helps you win in the middle of that i hate games like that i really really do not have fun with them. So I feel bad that you had to go through that. So here's my question. You got to come to a game day and it's either Oath or it's Lords of Ragnarok. <laughs> Probably Oath. Okay. <laughs> so a little, a little more interesting at least. <laughs> and, and I do have to, I do have to admit, and I'm not just saying this because we're going to get hate mail about this one, but there were a couple of neat things going on there, like the idea that the chancellor gets to make an exile into a citizen who now sort of, you know, works at the behest of the chancellor, but can also rise up against the chancellor. And some of that stuff was was kind of interesting. And they're the kind of group that likes playing a game like Diplomacy, where there's a lot of that kind of, how am I going to backstab you? And we all know we're trying to do that. That could be really attractive. So I, I'm obviously, this is a game that it's well-loved by many people. And there's a, it's got its constituency. The constituency just isn't me. So Chris, the, the other people involved in the game, did they all have a good time? Are they excited about the fourth iteration of the, the campaign? It's kind of a it's kind of a never-ending campaign from what I understand. The cards mix in and mix out as the different win conditions occur and this and that. So it's just a, a never-ending, always evolving, shifting kind of campaign depending on what cards are in and what cards are out. Did the rest of the group enjoy it? Are they looking forward to that fourth session? What was their take? The running joke of the day was that whoever won Chancellor this game was going to be Chancellor for life because nobody wanted to play it again. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it, and that was all said in, in fun. I mean, people, I, I imagine if, if they were asked to play it again, might give it another try. And everybody was good natured about it. And we all had a great time. It's just fun hanging out with people playing an interesting game. Um, yeah. but, but no, it was, it was not high on the hit list for the next game weekend. Okay. On the other hand, and I'll just touch on this really quickly, the surprise hit of the weekend was a delightful game called Challengers designed by Johannes Krenner and Marcus Slaudeshek and published by One More Time Games. This is an absolutely adorable party game at light board game, like real board gamer weight. 
what you did was you set up these, I guess it depends on how many players you had, but I think we had four different mats and each one is just basically an, uh, a level, a bunch of spaces, one between uh, one player and the other sitting across from each other. And really what it is, it's a, it's a series of games of capture the flag. And so each round you're going to move to the appropriate board and you're going to be constantly switching the people you're playing against. And you're going to sit down and you're going to play this little game of capture the flag where you're moving this flag back and forth across this little board and whoever ends up with the flag at the end is the winner of that round and then they get a little token and they get certain points based on that but what makes this game fun and elevates it is that at the end of each round you actually get to take cards in your base deck and trade them out with different higher level cards from a joint deck that has more powers and abilities and lets you do certain things. And it's got a really interesting deck building aspect to it. And you just keep moving around. So after I think it was like eight rounds that we did, we had eight people playing this game and we had about eight rounds of play. And each round lasted about less than five minutes. And it was just an absolute joyful thing bouncing around this table playing person after person seeing what goofy cards they came out with the art is fun the game was a blast i'm actually thinking of picking this one up because for one it was just super fun super easy to get into and it can accommodate a lot of players chris i had heard about this game uh, when you asked me the other day if i heard about challengers i said no because i couldn't i didn't remember anything about it but now that you've described it i have heard about this game and it always sounded like a really fun time here's my question can you play this with four people like could we have could we play this at bght con the four of us or does it need to be a bigger group to make the tournament interesting i think you could play it with four players it definitely makes it better when you've got a larger group playing i'm trying to think of how many if you had four players that would basically be how many iterations how many different variations of people playing against each other three be three games each. yeah so it wouldn't be ideal but I think it could be done. So you want to play this with like six, eight people, something like that. I think six to eight would probably be the, the premier way to play it. Do they have rules that where you could play with an uneven? So if you had seven people, for example, do they have some way to make that work where someone just sits out in a round or does it have to be even? Not sure. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, this game sounds fun. I'd like to try it at some point. I just don't see a situation where I'm going to pick it up because I, you know, when you're going to, this will probably be a great con game. Maybe this is something if I see this at BGG con, if somebody's mm-hmm. uh, getting a game started, this would be a fun one to jump into. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, Chris, this game looks great. And after hearing your vouch for it, I'd love to try this one. It looks super cool. All right, cool. Well, I got a couple of quick games I'm going to talk about. But the first one I'm going to mention only briefly because I'm going to make you guys play this with me the next time we get together. This is a Vladimir Suchi game called Pulsar 2849. It's a few years old. It's a game I've always been interested in playing, but really didn't know much about. Now, I happen to be at this local uh, seller's market where people sell their used games. Saw somebody had this at a table for 20 bucks and I was like, I wanted to try it. That's, you know, 20 bucks is worth me picking it up and at least just learning the rules. So I picked it up and mentioned it to my friends. And my one friend's like, I love that game. I teach it all the time. Let's play it. So we played it last week. And this game is so fun. It is eight rounds. You draft two dice every round. Very quick. Now, Adam, it sounds like Castle of Burgundy. You'll like it. It's got a space theme on it. And the things you're doing with the dice... Well, they still are abstract and don't feel like, how, why does a dice do this thing? But I think you'd actually like this tight game. There's a little bit of area control with it. There's some decent interaction with the other players. This is not Castle Burgundy, but it does have a similar mechanism. Well, it has a chance. And so is the is it dice drafting? Is it kind of like Lagranja where you there's preferential sort of picks given to the dice, not given to the dice, not where you just roll them and that's what you're stuck with. Yeah, it it is. And actually the dice drafting, I guess I'll, I'll go into this a little bit because this is the coolest thing about it. So the dice, you know, it's, it's, it's six sided dice and you're going to roll two per player plus one more. So in a three player game, there were seven dice rolled and you have these slots, you know, six spaces basically where you're going to put them out next to two tracks. One of the tracks is going to be the player turn track. And the other one, whoever's at the top of the track is going to get some bonus resources, which are really tight in this game, really hard to get to. So what happens is if it, once you roll the dice, you look at the mean, you know, what is the, the average number dice there? And then you put a little token on that dice. So if you draft the average token, let's say that you rolled a bunch of dice and there were three threes, one, one, and a couple sixes. So if you take a three, then um, you basically don't you don't move anywhere on one of these tracks. But if you take a one, then you're going to move in the positive direction on these tracks. Now, higher numbers are better in this game, so like many dice games are. But this one, the benefit is that if you take a lower number dice than the average, 
then you're going to get to move up on the turn order track so that you're more likely to be first in turn order for the rest of the round. Or you can move up this track that's going to get you extra bonus resources. If you take the six and three was the average, you have to move three spaces backwards on one of these tracks. So how high you go or how low you go compared to the average is going to completely change um, how painful it is to take these these negatives. And on the turn order track, if you go too far to the bottom, you end up getting negative points per round. So the dice drafting was fantastic here because you were making decisions not only about which dice you wanted, but also how are you competing for other people on these tracks? And if you take the the you know the one where you can move up the track, nobody else can even compete with you that turn. Now, Tim, I want to set something straight here. Are we talking about the median or are we talking about the mean dice here? Let's Let's uh, correct this for the math nerds in the crowd. Oh, math. <laughs> math. I'm not going to answer that because I can't remember now even how the rules work specifically enough to answer the question. But I think it was the mean. I think it was the I think it was the greatest number of of dice uh, of, of average dice. Is that that's the mean, right? Mean is when you sum them up, divide them by the number there. So I don't think that's the mean. Okay, then it's the median. Median, the median. is the middle value dice. So the median, yeah. if you organize them from one to six, the whatever dice is in the middle is the median. I can't then, remember now even how the rules go. I think it, well, you're probably right. It's probably the median. But in any case, somewhere in the average, it's very clear rules <laughs> when you read it. I just, someone taught it to me and I don't remember exactly how it goes. Anyway, fun interaction there, fun area control. Again, we won't go into too many rules because I think we will play this. I think you guys will actually like this game. So I'm going to save that for a future conversation. But I brought that up because I, I played another dice drafting game that night. This is a new game by Devere. This is called The White Castle. The designers were Isra C and Shay S. And those names may be familiar because Devere also published, I think, their first game or another game that they made, which was called The Red Cathedral. So they're clearly going for a colored building uh, theme with their games at this point. And The White Castle is set in ancient China, I believe. But um, essentially... There's a, this is another dice drafting game. And the way this works is that there are three colors of dice, white, orange, and black. And you roll these 12 dice, four of each color at the start of the round, and you place them on these three bridges, one for each color. And essentially what happens is you place the lowest number dice on the left side of the bridge and the, the highest number dice on the right side of the bridge. And there's always two dice to pick from from each color, the one on the left and the one on the right. When somebody drafts one of those one of those two dice, then one of the ones from the middle moves over. So it makes for an interesting, you know, kind of variation in what dice are available. And, um, you know, when you're tra- taking one out of one of those sides, it's going to dictate what's available for the next person or maybe what's available for you. This is another game where generally the higher number dice is always better than the lower number dice. But if you pick from the lower side of the bridge, you get an extra bonus. You get the trigger a bunch of effects that you're going to build into your own tableau on your board. So there's a cool engine board building mechanism. Once you take one of these dice, you put it out on one of these sections of the board. And here's the thing that is stands out from this game, because in a lot of ways, it's a pretty typical Euro. You take a dice, you place it on a space and you get the benefits for it. And then you're going to turn those benefits into other things. But this game has so much variability built into it, maybe to an excess even to this place where there's four spaces, I think, in the, the main level of the board and then two in the higher, three in the higher level. But each of these spaces has a card that dictates what the actions are on it. And so as somebody later in the game can build up their own tableau, they'll take one of those cards and a new card will come up. So basically what the worker, pl- what the dice placement spaces do are going to vary throughout the course of the game. Beyond that, when you go to one of these spaces and, and take the, uh, you know, place your dice there, at the beginning of the game, it's randomized what color dice are going to trigger it. So you, there's a bunch of these little chits that match orange, black, or white. And there's three spaces next to each of the dice. So you maybe you've got two oranges and a black on one space. And the card that's flipped over is going to get benefit two benefits for orange then and one for black. So the market of the, the economy of the dice of the game is going to change drastically every game. And then um, you're going to basically be trying to... Tr- convert some of the resources you get into three main actions. One is to go to, to uh, uh, like samurai training grounds where you're going to get a variable benefit that's going to vary per game. Or you're going to move up this, essentially this track moving up in the temple. And that's where you're going to take one of the cards off the temple and put it into your, in your tableau. Or you're going to farm. And when you farm, you place one of your, you, you pay and you place one of your workers over by the bridges where the dice are. And you get a benefit, again, variable. They're very, every game, it's going to be different cards that come out there. So I think what really makes this game stand out to me is that it's just 
a complete unique setup every time you play the game. And then it's going to start to rotate throughout the game. Uh, it was fun enough. I mean, I, I would say, again, it didn't stand out too much as far as what you're actually doing in the game, but it was a pretty fun puzzle. And you're only going to draft. It's three rounds. You're going to get three dice per round. So a total of nine actions that you're going to use the whole game. And there's a lot of stuff you're trying to do, but there's a cool way to kind of combo. Like if I go to this space and get two benefits on it because there's two orange dice spaces there then one of them is going to let me trigger my tableau which does a bunch of stuff another one's going to let me send somebody to the training ground which does a different thing so it's like this mix of like trying to put all these little combos together as much as you can with a very limited number of actions adam this is a game you will not like we should never play this game together (laughs) you 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 will not have fun playing this game is exactly the type of euro that is not interesting to you or not fun to you Pulsar 2849, I think you will enjoy. Chris, on the other hand, I think you probably would enjoy this. But if you're a Euro player, this is a nice mid. I would it almost felt a little heavier. I think it's ranked like 3.1 on Board Game Geek, but I honestly it felt a little heavier than that, maybe just on a first play. Um, but you know, I found it to be pretty interesting decisions. And I think there's enough variability that it's going to be interesting to go back to several times and and try it again so i i like to play it again i think it's a pretty fun game yeah and i hear they're working on an expansion called harold and kumar go to the white castle uh, i knew i knew there had to be a white castle <laughs> uh, well, fool, fool, i don't know what they expected foolishness aside uh it actually looks like a beautiful game what what is that yeah. cool looking fish meeple that's okay so this is so funny about this game and, and devere has been doing this right they make really pretty productions and everything about this game is beautiful it's great artwork, nice, you know, decent shits, dual layer player boards, these little player boards you have. Everything's high quality. That is the round marker. There's three rounds oh, okay. and there's a huge wooden block pre-printed thing. And all it does is it moves down once per round. Completely yeah. unnecessary. There's also, if you look on the pictures, there's where you place the dice after, you know, to draft from. There are these little bridges that are cardboard bridges you have to assemble. Completely unnecessary. They could have just been printed on the board with, you know, just four dice placed on it. So nice. I think, you know, my friends were joking about it. I was like, guys, like, Good production is good. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm happy that this is here and it's a reasonably priced game. Comes in a little box. It reminded me a lot of like Garfield's games where they put a, a pretty decent, he- you know, hefty game into a little tiny box. And I appreciate that until they come out with an expansion that annoys me. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is a game that I'm almost like tempted to say, I might pick this up because it's so tiny. It'll fit my collection and it's a fun puzzle to go into. I probably don't need to, though. It's probably not unique enough for me to to pursue it. But it is a game I'd be happy to play. Yeah, that giant is a fish meal, a carp or a koi or something. That thing is beautiful. The production looks fantastic. Colors look beautiful. I think you're right, Tim, when you're talking about this. It doesn't sound like it makes any sense, but maybe it does. Maybe it's just my brain that makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) It it makes perfectly Mm. good sense. You just have to like fun. Well, we're, we're all out of time today, so I'm going to hold off reading any reviews. We'll catch back to those next week where we'll be finishing our part three in our series uh, or not finishing, but we're going to continue on with part three in our series of uh, board games as stories. Really excited to, to take a look at our top five climaxes in board games next week. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.